following reading is taken from a magazine called The National Preacher from 1841. This content starts with Revivals of Religion in Cities and Large Towns by the Reverend Albert Barnes, January 1841. Revivals of Religion in Cities and Large Towns. The Theory of Revivals. Isaiah 45, verse 8. Drop down, you heavens, from above. And let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. This beautiful passage of scripture may be regarded partly as the expression of pious feeling and partly as a prophetic description. It is the language of one who greatly desired an increase of piety and who is accustomed to look forward to times when pure religion would shed abroad its influence on earth like descending showers from heaven. This prophet, more than any other one, fixed his eyes on the times of the Redeemer, and he delighted to describe scenes in which would occur when he should appear. With deep interest he threw himself amidst those future scenes, and with a heart full of faith he uttered the language of our text, Pour down, ye heavens, from above, like descending showers, and ye skies distill righteousness like fertilizing rains. Let the earth open her bosom, and let salvation spring forth as an abundant harvest. From these words I propose to commence a series of discourses on revivals of religion. Several considerations have induced me to enter on the discussion of this subject. One is that they are the most remarkable phenomena of our times and that they have done more than any other single cause to form the public mind in this country. Large portions of the community have been shaken to their center by these religious movements, and society has received some of its most decided directions from these deep and far-pervading revolutions. Another reason is that every Christian has the deepest interest in the question about revivals of religion. If they are the genuine work of God, if they accord with the statements in the Bible, if there are such results as he has a right to expect under the preaching of the gospel, he is bound by all the love which he bears to his Savior and to the souls of men to desire and pray for their increase and extension. Another reason is that there are many various and contradictory opinions in regard to these religious movements. It is not wonderful that, in a community where everything is subjected to free discussion, and every man is at liberty to form his own judgment, they should have given rise to great variety of opinion. By some they are regarded as a mere work of enthusiasm. By some they are supposed to be originated by a strain of preaching, and an array of measures adapted to operate on easily excited feelings and fitted to influence only the weaker portions of the community, and to be unworthy the attention of the more refined and intelligent ranks of society. By others, they are considered to be in accordance with all the laws of mind, regarded as having a foundation in the very nature of Christianity in its adaptedness to the world, as produced by the agency of the Holy Spirit, and is connected with the best hopes of mankind. Even among professed Christians, it cannot be denied that some look upon them with distrust and alarm. 
Others regard them as the glory of the age, and is identified with all that is cheering in the prospect of the conversion of the world to God. Some see in them the last hope of this republic against the tide of eels that is rolling in with rapid and desolating surges upon us, and some regard them as among the ills which religion, unsupported by the state, has produced in a country where all is wild and free, even to licentiousness. Perhaps there is scarcely any excitement of the public mind that has produced deeper attention. None that can by a Christian or a patriot be regarded as of higher moment, or is more likely to affect the best interests of man. The friend of revivals regards it as a fact of deep interest. There's scarcely a village smiles upon the American landscape that has not been consecrated in its early history by the presence and power of the Holy Ghost. In a revival of religion, he discerns and aspires that points to heaven. Proof that there is a place perhaps more than once honored by the presence of Israel's God. He sees in the reigning order peace and prosperity. Proofs that the power of God has been felt there. He finds it in its schools, its industry, its morals, its benevolence. Demonstration that Christianity there struck its roots deep in some mighty work of God's spirit. And as a result of sending out branches bending with rich and mellow fruits, he can recall there some thrilling period in its history when a spirit of prayer and seriousness gave its character to the growing village, and when under the influence of such a revival a molding hand was extended over all the social habits of the place. If such is their influence, it is an act of mere justice that Christianity should not be deprived of the claims which it has on the gratitude of the nation. It is a duty which we owe to ourselves and our country to understand and to appreciate causes so deeply affecting our welfare. There is one other reason why I propose to bring this subject before you, and indeed the main reason which has operated on my mind in doing it. It is whether it is to be expected that such scenes will be witnessed in large cities and towns, or whether there are in the very nature of a city population insuperable obstacles to the existence of revivals of religion there. It is certain that in our own land they have occurred much more frequently in the comparatively quiet retreats of the country, and that such scenes as are characteristically known as revivals of religion are scarcely known in large cities like the one where we dwell. Knowing as we do the effect which cities must have, and do have, on the religion, the chastity, the temperance, the intelligence, and the liberty of a nation, and knowing as we do the ten thousand obstacles which exist there to the promotion of true religion, it is a question of deep interest whether Christians are to expect now, in such places, scenes like that on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. It is with main reference to this inquiry that I have commenced this course of lectures, and my general plan will be to state the nature of a revival of religion, to consider the relation of revivals to this country, to show the importance of promoting religion in cities, to show what is the general character of cities with particular reference to this inquiry, to consider whether revivals may be expected to occur in cities, and to show the desirableness of such works of grace there. 
The following things will express what is meant by a revival of religion. Here the following truths are essential elements in the theory of such a revival. Number 1. There may be a radical and permanent change in a man's mind on the subject of religion. This change it is customary to express by the word regeneration, or the new birth. It supposes that, before this, man is entirely alienated from God, and that he first begins to love him. When he experiences this change, the previous state is one of sin. The subsequent is a state of holiness. The former is death. The latter is life. The former is the agitation of a troubled sea which cannot rest. The latter, calmness, peace, and joy. This change is the most thorough through which the human mind ever passes. It effects a complete revolution in the man, and his opposite states are characterized by words that express no other states in the human mind. This change is instantaneous. The exact moment may not be known, and the previous seriousness and anxiety may be of longer or shorter continuance, but there is a moment when the heart is changed, and when a man that was characteristically a sinner becomes characteristically a Christian. This change is always attended with feeling. The man is awakened to a sense of his danger, feels with more or less intensity that he is a sinner, resolves to abandon his sins and seek for pardon, is agitated with conflicts of greater or less intensity on giving up of his sins, finds greater or feebler obstacles in his way, and at last resolves to cast himself on the mercy of God and the Redeemer, and to become a Christian. The result is, in all cases, permanent peace and joy. It is a peace of the soul when pardon is pronounced on the guilty, and when the hope of immortal glory first dawns on a benighted mind. It may be beautifully illustrated by the loveliness of the landscape when the sun at evening breaks out after a tempest or by the calmness of the ocean, as it subsides after the storm. In the fact that such a change may occur, all Christians agree. In such a change is laid the whole theory of a revival of religion. Let many sinners simultaneously turn to God. Let conversions to Christ, instead of being few and far between, become numerous, rapidly occurring and decided in their character. And you have all that is usually meant when we speak of revivals, so far as conversions are concerned. Still, these are all individual conversions, accomplished in each case by the Holy Spirit, and in exact accordance with the design of the gospel, and evincing its glory. Each one is converted in the same way, by the same truth, by the same great agent, the Holy Spirit. If so he were alone, and another mind had been awakened or converted, it is a conversion of a number of individuals from sin to holiness, and from Satan unto God. Look on the heavens in a clear night, and you will have an illustration of what we mean. The stars that are set in that broad zone of light which stretches over the firmament, the Milky Way, are single stars each subject to its own laws, moving in its own sphere, glorious probably in its own array of satellites. But their rays meet and mingle, 
not less beautiful because the light of millions is blended together. Alone they all show God's power and wisdom. Blended. Day offends the same power and wisdom when he groups beauties and wonders into one. So in conversion from sin to God, take the case of a singular true conversion to God and extend it to a community, to many individuals. Passing through that change, and you have all the theory of a revival of religion. It is bringing together many conversions, arresting simultaneously many minds, perhaps condensing into a single place and into a few weeks the ordinary work of many distant places and many years. The essential fact is that a sinner may be converted by the agency of the Spirit of God from his sins. The same power which changes him may change others also. Let substantially the same views and feelings and changes which exist in the case of the individual exist in the case of others. Let a deep seriousness pervade a community and a spirit of prayer be diffused there. Let the ordinary haunts of pleasure and vice be forsaken for the places of devotion. And you have the theory, so far as I know, of a revival of religion. The second fact is that there may be times in the life of a Christian of unusual peace and joy. To whatever it may be owing, it will be assumed as a fact, for the truth of which I now depend on an appeal to the Christian's own feelings, that there are times in his life of far more than usual elevation and piety. Times when his peace is like a river, and his love to God and man like the waves of the sea. There are times when he feels an irresistible longing for communion with God, when the breath of praise is sweet, when everything seems to be full of God, when all his feelings prompt him to devotion, and when he becomes so impressed with the great truths of Christianity and filled with the hopes of heaven that he desires to live only for God and for the skies. Earthly objects lose their luster in his view. Their brightest, gayest colors fade away, and an insatiable panting of soul leads them away from these to hold communion with a Redeemer, a light, pure, tranquil, constant. It shed on all the truths of religion, and the desire of the salvation of children, partners, parents, friends of the church and of the world, enchains all the affections. Then to pray is easy, and to converse with Christians and with sinners is easy, and a prospect of boundless wealth and of the brightest honors would be gladly exchanged for the privilege of converting and saving a single soul. When this occurs in a church, and these feelings pervade any considerable portion of the people of God, there is a revival of religion so far as the church is concerned. Let Christians as a body live manifestly under the influence of their religion, let a feeling of devotion pervade a whole church, such as you would have felt in the favored times of your piety, and there would be a revival of religion, a work of grace that would soon extend to other minds and catch like spreading fires on the altars of others' hearts. Let a Christian community feel on the great subjects of religion what individual Christians sometimes feel, and should always feel, 
And so far as the church is concerned, there would be all the phenomena that exist in a revival of religion. A revival in the church is a revival in individual hearts and nothing more. It is when each individual Christian becomes more sensible of his obligations, more prayerful, more holy, and more anxious for the salvation of men. Let every professing Christian awake to what he should be, come under the full influence of his religion. And in such a church, there would be a revival. But in the most earnest desires for your salvation, there is no violation of any of the proper laws of Christian action, in grace, strenuous, and combined efforts for the salvation of others, in unceasing prayer for the redemption of all the world. There is no departure from the precepts of Christ nor from the Spirit which he manifested on earth. The third feature that occurs in a revival of religion to which it is proper to direct your attention is that an extensive influence goes over a community and affects with seriousness many who are not ultimately converted to God. Many individuals are usually made serious. Many gay and worldly amusements are suspended. Many persons not accustomed to go to the place of prayer, are led to the sanctuary. Many formerly indifferent to religion, or opposed to it, are now willing to converse on it. Many perhaps are led to pray in secret and to read the Bible, who before it wholly neglected the means of grace. Many who never enter into the kingdom of God seem to be just on its borders, and hesitate long whether they shall give up the world and become Christians, or whether they shall give up their serious impressions and return to their former indifference and sins. The subsiding of a revival, or the dying zeal of Christians, or some powerful temptation, or a strong returning tide of worldliness and vanity, leave many such persons still with the world, and their serious impressions vanish perhaps to return no more. It remains only to be added, it's an essential feature in a revival that it is produced by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not the work of man, however human agency may be employed. Imperfections there may be, and things to regret there may be, as in all that man touches there is but the phenomenon itself we regard as a work of the Holy Spirit, alike beyond human power to produce it and to control it. The wind blows where it lists, and you hear the sound of it. It cannot tell whence it comes or where it goes, and such is a work of the Spirit alike in an individual conversion or in a revival of religion. The wind, sometimes gentle, sometimes terrific, Sometimes sufficient only to bend the heads of the field of wheat, or to shake the leaf of the aspen tree, sometimes sweeping in the fury of the storm over hills and vales, illustrates the way in which God's Spirit influences human hearts. You have seen it. The pliant osier bend gently before the zephyr, and the flowers in the fields of grain gently wave in a summer's eve. So gently does the Spirit of God breathe upon a church which incline the minds to prayer, to thought, to Christ, to heaven. 
You've seen the clouds grow dark in the western sky. They roll upward and onward, enfolding on themselves and throwing their ample volumes over the heavens. The lightnings play, and the thunder rolls, and the tornado sweeps over the hills and vales, and the proud oak crashes on the mountains. The wind blows where it pleases, and thus too the Spirit of God passes with more than human power over a community, and many a stout-hearted sinner, like the quivering elm or oak, trembles under the influences of truth. They see a dark cloud gathering in the sky. They hear the thunder of justice. They see the heavens flash along their guilty path, and they are prostrated before God, like the forest before the mighty tempest. The storm passes by, and the sun rides serene again in the heavens, and universal nature smiles, a beautiful emblem of the effect of a revival of religion. Such is a brief description of what actually occurs. Number two, vindication of revivals and their influence on this country. In resuming the subject discussed in my last discourse, I propose to submit some additional considerations adapted to show the nature of revivals of religion and to vindicate them from objections. My general aim will be to show that there are the regular and proper result to the means which God is employing, that there are promises in the Bible, its invaluable blessings, and that their value has been evinced by their effects in the history of the church and especially by the history of our own country. This will be attempted in a series of propositions which will be attended as a continuance of those which were offered in my last discourse. My first remark is that the dealings of God and His providence are fitted to produce revivals of religion. The phenomenon which I am endeavoring to describe, you will recollect, is a simultaneous conversion of many souls to Christ in a rapid advance in promoting the purity and zeal of Christians. The question now is whether there is anything in the dealings of providence which is fitted. If a proper impression were made to produce this result, let me for one moment refer you to facts which are constantly passing before your eyes. Here falls, struck down by the hand of an unseen God, some endeared member of a family, a father, a brother, a sister, or a mother. What is the effect? There's a common lamentation around a dying bed of the friend, and a united sad and slow procession to the tomb. There is a sundering at once of many ties, a common feeling in view of a common loss, and together they bow the head and weep. The attention of the whole group is turned away from scenes of vanity, gain and ambition. A pulsing below is laid on half the comforts of life, and the weeping group sit down in sackcloth and ashes. The theater, the ballroom, and a splendid party are forsaken, and gloom is spread over the counting room, and a man leaves the scene of his domestic grief reluctant to go there. He has no heart now for amusement or pleasure or even for the usual much-loved scenes of his business and ambition. God has, for a time, sundered a tie which bound the united group to the living world, and has made an awful chasm in their circle. 
Does this affect a solitary individual? No. It affects a community. Is it designed to be the whole effect of this affliction to produce grief? Too well we know the purposes of that benevolent father who has caused these tears to believe this. It is to arrest the attention and direct it to better things, to God, to Christ, to heaven. It is to lead to reflection on sin and death, and the judgment, and eternity. It is to admonish all the weeping group to prepare to die. This scene is fitted to lead to a serious life, to religion, to God. But is it fitted to make one only a Christian? Is it an appeal to solitary independent emotions? No, it extends to the total group. And if a suitable impression were made by it on all, it would lead them together to the Savior. Yet, here would be all the elements of a revival of religion. And here's an event fitted to lead a community up to God. So when pestilence spreads among the people, and thousands die, so when famine is abroad on the earth, there's an appeal made to communities in the thoughts of men. If any suitable impression were made, would be directed to God and to a better world. So to change the same, the earth, renewed in springtime, the fresh proofs of the goodness of God, the bounties of his hand, new every morning, repeated every evening, all are fitted to lead men to God and are an appeal to them as communities. And there is neither a judgment of the Almighty nor a blessing that comes from our great Father's hand that is not fitted to impress communities with the importance of religion and to lead alienated social man back to God. Thus, threaten ruin roused Nineveh to repentance, and thus God visits the earth alike with judgment and mercy to rouse the attention of communities and to direct our thoughts to eternity and to heaven. But whatever may be said of providential dealings, one thing is clear. The truth of God is adapted to promote revivals of religion, that great system of glorious doctrines which constitutes the everlasting gospel, is adapted to produce everywhere such works of grace among men. It began its career in a glorious revival of religion on the day of Pentecost. It showed its power of moving communities, and especially the communities made up of cities and large towns in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Antioch, in Ephesus, in Corinth, and Rome. The gospel was propagated at first by a succession of most signal works of grace carried on alike among the most degraded and the most refined portions of mankind. And it has continued, as we shall yet see, to extend its power and influence mainly in this manner. Even now, if the truths of the Bible were applied by the Spirit of God to the hearts of the people in this house, the scenes of the day of Pentecost would be renewed here. If that same truth were applied as it might be to the inhabitants of our great cities, the interesting, though deeply agitating scenes which occurred in Jerusalem and in Ephesus would be renewed in Philadelphia, in New York, in Boston, in New Orleans, should the great truths affecting your welfare, my hearers now put forth their power, should everyone here feel as he should feel in view of the reality of his situation, 
A deep solemnity would come over this house, and there would be a simultaneous rushing to the cross of Christ, a burst of feeling in every part of this house, like that which agitated the bosom of the jailer at Philippi when he said, What must I do to be saved? Recall a few of those truths. You are sinners, sinners deeply depraved, and under the condemning sentence of a most holy but violated law. What if every man and woman and child here should feel this? What deep emotion would agitate their bosoms? What anxiety would be depicted on every countenance? How would the new roving eye be fixed in solemn thought? And a now gay and thoughtless heart prompt a deep inquiry. What is to be my doom? Yet, this is just such a scene as occurs in a revival of religion. Again, you will die. All, all die. And you will die soon. You have but few more plans to form and execute, and more probably to leave half executed, or but just commenced, before you will die. Inevitably, die. Were this truth felt by all, what emotion would there be in this room? What bosom but would swell with the anxious inquiry? What is it? to die, and what must I do to be prepared for death? Yet here would be such a scene as occurs in a revival of religion. Another truth, you will go to another world. You will stand at the bar of God. You will give a solemn account for all the deeds done in the body. You will bow with willing or constrained submission to the eternal doom pronounced on men by Jesus Christ. You will go from that tribunal to heaven, or to hell, perhaps in a week, a day, an hour. You may know fully what is meant by those mysterious and awful words, death, judgment, eternity, what it is to die, and to stand before God. And can anyone doubt that if all here felt the force of these truths, there would be a simultaneous impression on the subject of religion, and hundreds of voices here crying out, What must we do to be saved? These truths are in their nature fitted not to impress one, but everyone, not to lead one only to prepare to meet God, but to conduct all at the same time to the throne of mercy. Yet, here would be a revival of religion, and why should it not be so? What law of our natures or of Christianity is violated when such scenes occur? We have sinned together, and why should we not arise together and seek forgiveness? We are traveling together to the grave and to the judgment bar. Why should we not resolve to go together to heaven? The same Redeemer has died, and why should we not together seek for pardon through his blood? We shall lie in a common grave. Mingle with the same dust of the valley. Hear the sound of the same trumpet of the archangel in the day of judgment. And why should we not feel a common interest in such scenes now and gather around the same cross and lay hold together on eternal life? If it be reasonable for an individual to do it, why not for many, for all? Why should not the common feeling go from heart to heart? and all resolve by the grace of God to secure the salvation of the soul. 
What law of our nature would be violated should this be done? Yet here would be all the phenomena of a revival of religion.